Welcome to Medically Speaking, Auburn's own medical radio show with host Dr. Mark Vaughn of the Auburn Medical Group and Larry Finney. Welcome to Medically Speaking Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mark Vaughn, and... And I'm Larry Finney, hoping everyone had a fabulous Thanksgiving. Yeah, this is after Thanksgiving, isn't it? It doesn't feel like it here. Ah, uh, well, where, where where's here? Pre-recording. <laughs> <laughs> here in the secret hideaway studios. In the bunker. Yes. And and our guest is going to be uh, one of our favorites. Oh, yeah. People Pol- love him. The People are always talking about, hey, when are you going to get that Dr. Miranda back on? Well, Dr. Miranda's back. Dr. Joe Miranda, pulmonologist and uh, sleep specialist. And he's going to be talking today about... Critical care medicine. Yeah. And advanced directives and things like that. So And different technologies for uh, artificial ventilation. And we'll probably discuss the infamous turkey coma. The, I believe that does come up during the show, yes. Yeah, the turkey coma will be coming. So uh, people are traveling during the holidays. There was a lot of traveling, probably still a lot of traveling going on right now. And I wish we had call in, but we are pre-recorded. But I would love to hear from callers about the airport body scanners. Yeah. (laughs) Now, there is a medical angle to this, of course. Uh, The so-called experts say that the airport body scanners are safe. There's a a professor of physics at Arizona State that says that uh, when a scanner is working properly, the amount of radiation is very low. Well, wait a minute, though. When the thing is working properly... Mm. um, he, he gets, he says, um, the probability of getting a fatal cancer is about one in 30 million, which puts, uh, it lower than the probability of being killed or, or being struck by lightning. Okay. Um, he says it's a mechanically scanned system. And if the scanning mechanism were to jam something, which is quite possible, then one could get a very high level dose of radiation. This is the same expert. So he's, he's on the one hand, he's giving us, it's a low dose of radiation, but it's possible that the scanning mechanism jams and you get a high dose of radiation. So, like, which is it? And, of course, the the paid spokesperson says it's safe. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, this is certainly a topic we're going to continue following because it's very much in the news. And, and maybe we'll even have some callers call in next week telling about their experiences with traveling over the Thanksgiving weekend. And we'll even give them food for it. <laughs> That's right. We'll have some food next time. Turkey sandwiches, next leftover week. turkey sandwiches and cranberries. <laughs> Prepared right. by me. Okay, but we do need to get off uh, quick because we have a very long show with Dr. Miranda. So uh, we'll see you after the break. The content of this website and the Medically Speaking Radio Show are meant for entertainment and for general information purposes. No doctor-patient relationship is attempted or implied through the show or the website. Any medical advice, home remedies, and all other medical information on this website or radio show should not be treated as a substitute for the medical advice of your own doctor. Do not attempt any treatment mentioned on the website or the show without consulting your doctor. Always consult your own doctor if you are in any way concerned about your health. If you need a doctor and live near Placer County, call Jen at 530-886-8630. If you have a medical emergency, call 911. Medically Speaking Radio, Dr. Mark Vaughn, Auburn Medical Group, KHI Radio, and or our sponsors are not responsible for any diagnosis or treatment made by anyone based on any of the content of this website or the Medically Speaking Radio Show. In addition, the views and opinions expressed on the show or on linked websites are not necessarily those of Dr. Mark Vaughn, Hey Hi Radio, the Auburn Medical Group Incorporated, or any of the show sponsors. November is National Hospice Month. 
and Sutter Auburn Faith Hospice and K-High Radio urge you to learn more about the special kind of care that provides dignity, hope, and love at the end of life. Hospice professionals and volunteers understand that every person they care for is a unique individual with a lifetime of experiences, relationships, and gifts to share. By focusing on the individual, not the illness, hospice care honors life's final journey, leaving a legacy of compassion and caring. Contact Sutter Auburn Faith Hospice at 886-6650 to learn more or visit with our volunteers in the community during outreach events in November. Larry, have you ever been to Auburn Drug Company? Yeah, that's the one with the marble soda fountain at 815 Lincoln Way. Yeah, right there in front they have the marble fountain. And in back is an independently owned pharmacy right here in Auburn. And that thing has been around for a long time. Since the 1800s. They are so great because they actually fill your prescriptions when you ask them to, unlike the chain drug stores that make you wait. You know, and waiting there wouldn't be a big crime because, heck, you could always go to the soda fountain. That's Auburn Drug Company at 815 Lincoln Way in downtown Auburn. Give them a call at 885-6524. Now, back to Medically Speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. Welcome back from the break. This is Medically Speaking Radio on AM 950. K. hi, your voice of the foothills. I'm Dr. Mark Vaughn, one of your hosts, and uh, you heard me speaking with Larry Finney uh, earlier. And we do have our guest with us, Dr. Jose Miranda, or Joe Miranda, uh, pulmonologist here at Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Miranda. Thank you for inviting me back again, Mark, Larry. The, the subject is... Uh, critical care medicine. Larry, you you had a question about that. Well, I think we probably ought to start off by defining what is critical care because I've heard critical care and chronic care. I, you know, what what are the differences? Are they the same thing? I don't know. Well, basically, critical care medicine is a particular uh, field of specialty that involves uh, the use of intensive care uh, services. Uh, general and basically only provided in an intensive care unit setting in a hospital that's equipped for this. This involves the care of patients who are critically ill and uh, who are uh, presenting with a significant illness, either due to disease or uh, trauma, that's led them to be very uh, much at risk of dying because they're unable to sustain their breathing or they're unable to support their circulation because their blood pressure is so low. So this is where I jump in and say, do... Is it disease only, or can I be in the ICU because of injury or Sure, accident? of course. Yeah, like a motor vehicle accident that sustained significant head trauma. A patient's lost consciousness. Uh, they're at risk of not being able to breathe on their own. They have to be put on a ventilator. Their blood pressure is low. They need you know, a lot of blood products. They need uh, uh, special medications that, uh, require, that are needed to get their blood pressure up. And more importantly, they need very intensive uh, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute monitoring by specially trained nurses and personnel. Now, you're a pulmonologist. Does does critical care fall into your realm? Yes, uh, critical care uh, becomes a part of a pulmonologist uh, field of expertise just because of the fact that it has to do with uh, respiratory uh, maintenance and control. Being unable to breathe is certainly life-ending, and so uh, a pulmonologist usually gets involved in the ICU when patients uh, stop breathing for whatever reason, uh, and they require a mechanical ventilator, usually coincident with not being able to breathe. There's issues like uh, severe infection, low blood pressure, patients are in shock. And so this all uh, basically lends itself to intensive care medicine. Well, I, I wanted to get in here with some, some little factoid that I discovered that you know our, our listeners might be going, well, why should I care? Um, 
I am reading that nearly 80% of all Americans will experience a critical illness or injury either as a patient, family member, or friend of a patient. So one way or another, 8 out of 10 of us are going to be touched by touched by the ICU, which probably is not a good TV series to watch, but... No, that's uh, that, and that's uh, that's not surprising. It's true. I, I had a question. We were talking last week with Dr. James Willis about the American Board of Medical Specialties and how you have the twenty-six or so different medical specialties and then there are subspecialties. Is there a specific designation through the ABMS for critical care medicine? Yes, there is. There's a uh, there are pay, uh, there are physicians out there who are trained uh, in pulmonology and critical care as part of their fellowship training and there are patients who are there are individuals out there who are just trained as intensivists uh, primarily they have to be a a, a internist or a, a pediatric specialist to begin with and you know there are su- uh, subdivisions of uh, intensive care medicine there's a pediatric intensivist and there are of course uh, general intensivists who deal with uh, all diseases involving the scope of internal medicine they may not be pulmonologists per se, but their specialty is intensive care medicine, and they're basically hospital-based. They don't work in an outpatient office setting. Does a, a pulmonologist automatically have critical care credentials? Not not all not all pulmonologists, uh, depending on, on how long ago you may have trained, uh, did get critical care training. A lot of the fellowships uh, that involve pulmonology incorporate critical care as part of that training. That's usually a three-year uh, training period after you've done residency. Three years of pulmonary and critical care, or combined, yes. Oh, oh the two together—they yes. just go together. Yeah. And what is the title of the board? Uh, uh, the, the usually you're 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 boarded under the American Board of Internal Medicine, okay, as a pulmonologist and uh, critical care specialist. Okay, and, and they go hand in hand. Those yes, two terms. yeah, and then okay. there 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 are physicians who maybe have completed uh, internal medicine. They just want to do intensive care medicine and. They uh, get involved in a year of uh, fellowship training in intensive care medicine. It's just a year of critical care training. They don't have the other two years of uh, that involve pulmonology. I'm going to change the subject just a little bit, kind of personalize things. I we we cannot help but notice here in the confines of our our cozy little recording studio that you're wearing a um, one of those little booties to immobilize your ankle. Yeah, it's called a cam walker. A what? It's a cam walker. It's basically an air cast. Mm-hmm. It isolates my leg. I. I injured myself playing tennis with uh, a bunch of uh, buddies up in Lake of the Pines, and uh, certainly they were much older than me, and I was reminded that I'm probably getting to be as old as them. And I tore my calf muscle. So I have to keep this isolated for like uh, a month, and I can't engage in my usual sport activities uh, for maybe two or three more months. And this stuff always happens during the holidays, at least for me. You know, if you're going to injure yourself, it's never, you know, time off work or away from school. No, it's always during a vacation or you know, a time off. It's, yeah, I feel like I'm wearing a ski boot and walking around with one. Yeah, it's kind of what it looks like. I almost feel like I need one on the other leg so I can walk more evenly. Yeah, <laughs> but that didn't get you a trip to the ICU. No, no, no. That was just a trip, yeah, to, that's the, just a, that's that's a trip to the ER, make sure I didn't tear something else more important. Which, which segues to the next question. What is the difference between the emergency medicine and critical care? Well, uh, generally, when patients are showing up in the ICU, they've usually come to the emergency room first. And then uh, it was determined that these patients uh, can't go home, they're critically ill, and they need to be hospitalized. And at that point in the ER, they're usually, uh, it's decided that, oh, you need to be in the ICU to get, uh, to get better. And uh, uh, Otherwise, the emergency room often is used uh, maybe uh, inappropriately at some point, not for emergency-related uh, med- medical care, 
you know, people show up there for whatever number of reasons. Uh, but usually an emergency room uh, should be able to resolve some things that uh, someone can go home with. But for the most part, uh, if it's a real emergency, usually you end up getting hospitalized. And they either put you in the regular hospital uh, ward bed or you end up in the, uh, in the ICU. The things that go on in the, in the ICU, the critical care, that occurs in the emergency department also. If you're doing that kind of thing in the emergency department, at the same time you're doing it, it's the job of the hospital staff to do everything they can to get that patient out of the emergency department and into the ICU to continue that care. Yes. Uh-huh. And sometimes you can end up in the ICU uh, from being in the, on the hospital floor and for whatever reason, your condition on the floor deteriorated and you ended up, oh my gosh, yeah, we need to put them in intensive care. Sometimes people have complications after their surgery, which may have been initially just an elective, fairly straightforward surgical procedure that we're going to go home in a day and for whatever reason, some complication transpired, and next thing you know, they're in the hospital and having to stay in the ICU to recover. Yeah, I'm looking at my list of things that typically require critical care. Um, heart attack, poisoning, pneumonia. You just mentioned surgical complications. Premature birth, stroke, uh, and then trauma care, which, you know, we all, we've all fallen off. Our, well, not all of us have fallen off the roof, but, you know. It's, it's the kind of stuff that typically happens uh, up in the foothills. Somebody will hurt themselves with a chainsaw or fall off the roof. Or Now, you gave a, quite a broad list of different types of things that would put someone in the... In fact, I would say in, uh, in a larger institution, most of the items you just read would actually have their own critical care unit, cardiac care unit, trauma unit, uh, neonatal intensive care unit. That's true. These all lend themselves to this particular sub... Uh, subspecialized levels of care. You know, trauma units, uh, those are very particularly uh, designed to serve patients who've sustained significant trauma, uh, whether it's um, uh, military service-related trauma or, or uh, you know, having to do with uh, vehicular accidents. Uh, um. Now, I've heard the term chronic care as well. I- is that a... Is that, a um... oh, that's per- that pertains more to, to patients who, for whatever reason... Uh, uh, don't necessarily require hospitalization any longer, but still need some level of monitored and uh, skilled nursing care where they need to go to a, a facility that is a step down from what a hospital is able to provide and they need some perhaps rehabilitation uh, with skilled nursing. Would this be like kidney dialysis patients who just return periodically? They no, but th- those uh, dialysis patients are, uh, are managed as an outpatient. They go to dialysis centers on a weekly schedule where they get their treatments and then, but they do go home. Uh, you know, what you spoke of earlier with the chronic care facility, that's something where a patient actually stays there until they're deemed, you know, sufficiently stable to be able to go back home. Otherwise they may be in long-term skilled nursing, which is basically a form of chronic care. And when I think of chronic care in the same room with a pulmonologist, I think of people who are on ventilators for whatever reason. Uh, you know, of course the most celebrated example would be, uh, Christopher Reeve with having the, the paralysis so that he had to actually have a ventilator. Uh, there, yeah, there are facilities that we call the subacute care units where people are, for whatever reason, uh, uh, plagued by a chronic condition that is unresolving. And uh, the level of care they require it requires some skilled expertise in, in some degree, but not necessarily requiring a hospital setting. So these are, there are ventilator facilities where people are chronically managed and continued on a ventilator. Uh, and they live dependent on ventila- uh, ventilatory machines that artificially keep them breathing. And this is a good segue to talk about, you know, advanced care directives that 
perhaps a lot of members of the community need to address, particularly if uh, if they have chronic medical illnesses that are potentially life-threatening on a ongoing basis, and your doctors are doing a good job of keeping you alive, but there's always that risk that you might end up uh, you know, deteriorating rapidly and potentially may require uh, an intensive care setting to, uh, to uh, stabilize you and resuscitate you. And of course, as we become more technologically proficient in managing chronic illness, we get to a point where uh, patients are just slowly deteriorating, and we're not really curing anything, but we're prolonging uh, life, so to speak, in some semblance of it. And we need to address quality of life issues with those particular individuals. And the individuals, once they're still able to participate in making those decisions, they need to at least communicate with their physician and say, look, uh, Dr. Vaughn, uh, this is all I want out of my life at this point. Don't keep me you know, alive for any particular reason if I start to lose the ability to do certain things. Because for me, that quality of life uh, no longer exists. And there's no point in prolonging my life uh, unnecessarily if it doesn't amount to any improvement in my quality of life. Yeah, not, not doing those heroic measures that are, are not expected to... Uh... Certainly, and it makes it easier for family and for the individual to at least make their, their, their desires known. It's certainly, it's a difference between suffering as opposed to staying alive and having some semblance of a, a meaningful life. In California, we have the so-called PULST form, Physician mm-hmm. Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, uh, which was put into effect in our state January of last year or the year before. Usually it's a bright colored, kind of a pink color paper that's on the front of the chart. Uh, and so that I would think you see quite a few of those in the ICU. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I encourage everyone, but especially people who are in ill health, to go over that form with their doctors and make sure it has exactly what they think and what they want. So the, And let their loved ones know, this is where I'm at. You know, I don't want someone to start my heart if it were to stop or if I were to need to go into the hospital and have uh, a ventilator breathe for me, please don't even start it in the first place. Those kind of decisions. Yeah, and it, and it's uh, it's not easy to make the decisions uh, you know, for family members to be burdened with that responsibility if the patient's never addressed it or talked to anyone about it. Because it is, it is painful to watch people suffer and deteriorate. And we do all sorts of invasive interventions that may not necessarily be, uh, be a good thing in the long term. Now, how easy is it, or difficult as the case might be, to, to prepare these forms? Is this something I would need to see an attorney about, or, or is this a very simple process? It's a very simple. In fact, we, we did it on one of our shows once. We brought it in here, and we went over uh, the different elements on it. It has three sections. One of them is, do you want them to start CPR or not? That's the first section. The second section is, do you want so-called heroic measures to be done? Having a, a ventilator hooked up to you, having um, invasive intravenous uh, catheters put in what we call central lines and you know you choose yes or no on those things and then the bottom one has to do with uh, tube feedings you know being fed through a tube instead of through your mouth and it has three options yes no and well for a defined predefined period of time so a person can say you know you can try it for two weeks and if I come around great if not start stop giving the feedings through that way that artificial nutrition yeah that was gonna be my next question is Hey, what if I don't know? Maybe I want those things because I'll come back. I don't want folks to just say, "Ah, oh, well, here's a this this is an easy case. Just walk away from this guy if he stops breathing." Well, maybe maybe all it needs is a little CPR and I'm and I'm back. But so so I actually have the option of saying um, two weeks or well, someone who wants CPR, someone who their heart th- stops and they want CPR performed by default, 
that means you can't say no to other things on this particular form. And here's the reason. To do CPR on a person, to shock them with the electricity, to put a tube down their throat, to resuscitate them, that's full, full court press. You're doing all that you can. And so it, just, it doesn't make sense at all to say, do all that, but don't put an IV in me or don't put BiPAP uh, respiratory support on me. It's, it's very, um, you know, it's kind of a continuum. That's how I look yeah. at it. Yeah, it's an all or none uh you know, uh, uh, decision, but of course this can be further refined and defined with a discussion with your physician. If, if you have a, you know, a terminal illness that you know is terminal in the long term, there's, you know, you, you can easily say, well, I don't, you know, since I already know my prognosis, even before I end up in an ICU, you know, I don't see a point of that ever having to transpire. Uh, you know, don't do this because I already know that I've got terminal cancer and uh, what's the point of pushing things further and of course you can define as mark as dr bond has said uh you know well if, if i have a, the potential of not recovering after an extended duration of of critical care then we can easily terminate any further intervention at that point yeah i guess my point is that in talking about this i don't know i don't know how many of our listeners will remember this the celebrated case of karen quinlan remember the the woman who was at the time quite young when she went into a coma, but stayed in a coma for, gosh, what was it? Was it a decade? Certainly some, some number of years, a very long time. And I, I would think that is the, that's the situation you want to avoid. But, but how does a 20 something year old know to make this decision? I mean, it's, it'd probably be much easier if you're 85 years old and, and, you know, fraught with all sorts of, of uh, illnesses, yeah, I, I for one, would would not want to be kept on a ventilator for years. And actually, I would say her case was so unique that this form does not address that situation well. But uh, what we need to do now is take a break, and then when we get back, we'll continue this discussion with Dr. Joe Miranda, pulmonologist here at Southern Faith Hospital. This is Medically Speaking Radio. Since 1966... Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital has been providing award-winning care to members of the community, to people just like you. The tradition of excellence continues today with our comprehensive family birth center, cancer services, 24-hour emergency care, and a whole range of outpatient services with convenient hours and locations to serve you. In addition, we've been recognized for excellence in managing heart attacks, heart failure, pneumonia, and surgical care. We are one of a select few hospitals in the state to earn recognition from VHA's West Coast region for sustained outstanding clinical performance. To learn more about Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital, visit us on the web at sutterauburnfaith.org slash medically speaking radio. That's sutterauburnfaith.org slash medically speaking radio. Sutter Health, with you for life. This is Dr. Mark Vaughn. I want to tell you about my dentist, Rodney Kihara. His office is located right in town at High Street and Auburn Folsom Road. His staff is pleasant. They smile when you walk in, and you know who they are because they're there every time. We're talking about Flo, Cheryl, and Judy. Their pleasant faces welcome you into the office and let you know that you're in the right spot, a comfortable place to go to the dentist. Call Dr. Kihara's office at 888-1966. That's 888-1966. The doctor would say, don't stick anything in your ear. Unless, of course, it's medically speaking. On K-High, the voice of the foothills. 
Now, back to Medically Speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. Welcome back from the break. This is Medically Speaking Radio. Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney, your host, together with Dr. Joe Miranda, here talking about critical care medicine. Critical care medicine, because Dr. Miranda is a specialist in pulmonology and critical care right here at Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital. And when we left over the break, we were talking about uh, making your wishes known before you get into a, a critical care situation and uh, talking to your doctor and making those wishes known through a, a standardized form that the state of California has called the, the pulsed form. It's also in several other states uh, already, just so that your doctor and also for your loved ones to know where you're coming from in case hard decisions need to be made on life-sustaining treatment. Yes. On that note, uh, besides uh, making your wishes known and having that documented, uh, patients and all individuals should also uh, designate someone as a spokesperson, uh, what we call a durable power of health attorney. So uh, say something should happen to me, I would uh, let my physician know that I am assigning my spouse or my mother or my father or my oldest uh, uh, child to speak on my behalf, uh, knowing full well that I've also discussed those issues with that individual. So they know full well what I want and what I don't want. And uh, in case uh, things should change during the course of my illness, they're able to make the, make, you know, exercise my directives in my absence of being able to communicate. Yeah, and that particular durable power of attorney is limited just to health. As yes, just health-related issues. It's, it's not like they can sell your house for you or you know, change your citizenship or that, that, that type of thing. Yeah, I, I've, I have a little experience with that, having had to, to do that one myself, uh, at, at being the um, executor or the, the one that carries out the durable. But uh, I wanted to change up just a little bit. You mentioned a, a, a term earlier in the show and, and uh, talked about something or someone, rather, called it an intensivist. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is a, this is someone who specializes in, this, in, in critical yeah, care. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the critical care specialist and... Uh, they may just do that, and they may not do any. You know, they may not be a pulmonologist. They, they just are specialized in intensive care medicine. And sometimes they uh, they may be comfortable managing uh, respiratory issues, or they may actually ask an, a pulmonologist to be part of the uh, critical care team to help manage ventilator and, and breathing related uh, care. Yeah, we had done a show earlier where we talked about a hospitalist. Now, I'm. I, I see some blurring of lines here. The hospitalist is, if my, I recall correctly, is, is a doctor who practices strictly in the hospital mm-hmm. and is sort of the bridge between the patient and the and that patient's primary care physician. That's true. Yeah. Does the hospital does the intensivist in this case supplant the hospitalist, or or do they both have some? No, they're, they're both separate, and sometimes they do they do blend. Uh, uh, the hospitalists here at Auburn Faith uh, are. Uh, are familiar with intensive care medicine, and uh, they do practice intensivist uh, duty in the ICU, as well as being the hospitals on the floor. Now, certain uh, larger systems, uh, based on the volume of patients they have and based on the size of the ICU, uh, are unable to have enough manpower to do both. Uh, so they have they have intensivist teams that are just dedicated only to being in the ICU because it is labor and time intensive to be in the ICU. You know, one patient can take you several hours of work as and at the same time you may not be available to take care of uh, basic hospitalist work because it's just so time consuming so depending on the volume and size of your hospital and the community that's being served you know there are separate uh, teams that are just intensivist teams there are and of course the hospital team can be a separate uh, unit altogether you know we've we've had you on the show several times you you, you have um, 
specialty in sleep disorders, pulmonology, now critical care. And I, you, you practice in the hospital, but you have your own patient load. Yes, I have outpatients. I'm, I, uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what what does your day look like. I mean, <laughs> it's busy. It's which hectic. Hat, which hat do you put on? What, what does a typical day look like for you? Well, I'm I'm in the office uh, all day, and uh, I get called for consultations at the hospital by the hospitalists, uh, who are uh, uh, honestly quite uh, quite uh, expert in their care of ICU patients, and so. Uh, uh, we, I work a little more efficiently that way. I don't get called for all the ICU cases. I get called for ICU cases that have uh, some respiratory issues that uh, may be beyond the scope of their comfort level uh, in managing the patients on ventilators and may have some unique conditions and, of course, may have some unique procedural requirements that the, the intensivist doesn't perform. So a, a pulmonologist does bronchoscopies, and we do bronchoscopy-assisted uh, lung biopsies that an intensivist uh, may not have any expertise in, in doing altogether because it's a pulmonology-related... Uh, hey, stop uh, the bus. What's a bronchoscopy? A bronchoscopy is where we... Sounds like we, a dinosaur of some kind. You know, it's coming after me. Well, I'm sure everyone's held, heard of colonoscopies and endoscopies for, for gastrointestinal-related uh, conditions. And this, is a, this uses an endoscopic uh, fiber optic uh, instrument that's able to be inserted into, uh, say, the GI tract and looking for any anomalies in the GI tract that would uh, uh, have diagnostic uh, importance in, in someone's gastrointestinal diagnosis. Well, a bronchoscopy is basically a specialized uh, endoscope that's uh, not as big as a colonoscope, and it, we basically insert it into someone's airway and into the lungs itself, and we're looking for uh, pathology in the airway that may be contributing to someone's uh, uh, respiratory problems. Say uh, someone may have a lung tumor that's in an airway that we can actually access and, and biopsy. Someone may be having a... Uh, blood when they cough, and we're looking for a communicating uh, abnormality in the airway that that's contributing to the blood. Uh, of course, if you you swallow or aspirate, aspirate basically means inhaling something into your airway that shouldn't be there. A foreign body, whether it's a piece of food or some foreign object, a bronchoscopy would be helpful to pull out that object. I pulled out a couple months ago. I pulled out a dime out of someone's airway that it had for months and didn't aware that. And we don't, he doesn't even recall how it got in there. But you never know, you might need sort. to make a phone call. You know, you just answered my, my next question, which was, what's the strangest thing you've ever pulled out of someone's lungs? Well, you the know? strangest thing I've heard about was, uh, I think it was, it was a, a case that was uh, documented and written up in the literature in maybe in the last six months. It involved a gentleman who uh, was uh, presumed to have a cancer in his airway, uh, in his lung, and uh, it was growing, and they thought he was going to die, and uh, he eventually was able to see a pulmonologist and got a bronchoscope to get a diagnosis, you take a biopsy of the tumor, the presumed tumor, and determine, oh yes, this is the type of cancer you have, this kind of therapy you require. Well, lo and behold, this elderly person had the, bronchos- uh, the bronchoscopy, and they didn't find a tumor. What they found was a pea plant growing in his airway. And uh, yeah, it was growing. That's what it looked like on the x-rays and the CAT scans. And fortunately, it wasn't a tumor, and they pulled out this pea plant. He Somehow he'd aspirated a pea or a pea seed or something, and it had, was growing. Well, you have lots of moisture and sunlight. and you have lots of oxygen and carbon dioxide moving through. But yeah, light, it needs light. Yeah. That's, a, that's the second place I can think of where the sun don't shine. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interestingly, uh, in, his rec- uh, in his post-op recovery, uh, his friends bought him uh, cans of peas as a get well sort of a joke. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but so what was but the that's date? a true case. I was going to ask you, what was the date on the dime in this one guy's lung that you put No, we actually did look at the date, see if they had any value. So we... <laughs> 
It wasn't like a Civil War uh, relic or anything. Is there a story behind how the dime got there? He doesn't know. He couldn't tell me how it got there. Yeah, I'm like, I think I would know if a dime went down my lungs. But he did have some uh, history of cough, but it wasn't something that he found particularly annoying, but it was a cough nonetheless. So, you know, you look for reasons why someone's coughing. There was this dime on the x-ray. I'm trying to picture what, what happens when you see this on the x-ray? Do you just stop everything and start calling your colleagues? Hey, everybody, gather around here. Look at this. But the dime was on its side, so it didn't look like a round object. It was more sort of a, a disc-like uh, linear uh, opacity within the, the, the airway. Now, when I think of uh, dimes in the airway, I think in terms of them being in the trachea, and they, they orient a certain way. Usually they go uh, front to back, so you see... A, see the big dime on a uh, lateral x-ray of the airway, whereas it's just a little slit when you look at a uh, front-to-back x-ray. Was this one actually in the trachea or was it? For no, the it was in the uh, left mainstem uh, bronchus. So, you know, Way down. and, you know, your, your trachea divides into the right, you know, in the right and left mainstem uh, bronchus. And, you know, your, your airways are like the branches of a tree. And fortunately, the, uh, the dime is uh, of a certain finite size and it could only go beyond a certain airway it couldn't go past so which was a good thing we were able to see it in a proximal area i could pull it out i just gotta know heads or tails <laughs> which was it yeah, i think i think heads was showing but it was sort of at an, at an oblique angle okay so again what going back into the whole team of of um chronic or critical care physicians and and um hospitalists and so forth where does the family practitioner fit into all of this well, the family practitioner, uh, basically, uh, uh, at least in this day and age, a lot of the uh, primary care doctors aren't so involved in the hospital anymore because, uh, you know, and frankly, you know, in this day and age, the, the level of medical outpatient care we have to provide because of diminishing reimbursements and returns is driven by volume. And if you've got 20 patients in the, in the office or 25 or 30 in some, some physicians I've heard about, you don't really have time to be managing people in the hospital, which can be more time-intensive and labor-intensive because of the fact that they're more complicated and they, they require a lot more testing and interventions. So the primary care physician, if anything, uh, uh, you know, will visit the patients in the, in the ICU because they have a relationship with that patient and just to provide some emotional and, 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 uh, and, and psychological uh, reassurance. And, of course, uh, as a physician, to, to be familiar with what's going on because eventually you hope that that patient will get out of the ICU and be back in the uh, in 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 his usual home and back in the office for a follow up. And certainly, the pr- the primary care docs want to be you know, want to be kept abreast because they are still the main go to person. Yeah, I'd say it's it's not unheard of to see the uh, family practitioner practicing critical care medicine. But yes, there are. But in, usually, it's in a smaller in a smaller, uh, smaller, smaller community smaller where hospital, smaller where they community. have limited resources and they don't have intensivists. And I've 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 heard of primary care doctors doing everything. Uh, <laughs> all the way down to running the ER, running the ICU, running everything else because they're the only game in town and there's no one else doing it. And thank God they have the expertise and the experience by, by virtue of default to be able to do all that thing, all those uh, services. So I'm going to go someplace completely different here. We're, as, as we record this, it's, uh, it's the day before Thanksgiving, but by the time folks hear this, it'll be two days after, right? So... Any predictions as to the types of, of uh, odd emergency type goodies that come up in the uh, intensive care unit during during Thanksgiving, or is it just another weekend? Well, you know, we've had we've had uh, 
Well, this is a time when people get indulgent, and we've also had some good snowfall. So uh, there are patients out there who may eat more than they should or may be too inebriated to be eating as much as they can. They can aspirate and get a foreign body <laughs> lodged in their airway, and, uh, or they can, uh, they can uh, overindulge in alcohol and end up uh, getting hurt, falling down, hitting their head. Uh, that's, that's a rock and roll death there. Yeah, that's and, a and, uh, and of yeah. course there's ski accidents, and then, and then of course uh, the individual who's got heart failure and other medical problems that limits the kind of dietary uh, you know, intake they can have, and some of us may forget about our dietary restrictions over the holidays and have too much salt, have too much of something that causes us to go into heart failure. That'll show up in the ICU. Uh, and of course, if you travel, make sure you bring all your medications. You don't want to be without your medications and end up in, in some other ICU or ER somewhere else, not in your local town or home. Yeah. And that can make things complicated. You ever treated a case of turkey coma? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I haven't heard of that diagnosis yet. I've, but uh, I've been in a turkey coma before. I, I, I think that uh, resolves by itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah tur- I, I avoid turkey. It just makes me too sleepy. Too much tryptophan in that meat. Oh, yes. I was going to ask you about that as, as a, as a uh, sleep specialist, but this is probably a good time to take a break, and uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Hello, this is Attorney Max Beeman. I specialize in frivolous lawsuits, and I've never lost a case. You heard me right. I've never lost a case, and I've done hundreds. No case too frivolous. Was your coffee too hot? Was your suit too cold? Did the traffic signals make you miss an important appointment? I get big awards for my clients in cases just like these. In these tough economic times, you can't afford not to sue. Winning a lawsuit can change your life, and I can make that happen. Call me, Max Beeman, 916-384-0237. 916-384-0237. This is Dr. Mark Vaughn. I wanted to let you know a little bit about our practice at the Auburn Medical Group. The physician, nurses, and front desk personnel all approach the patient, asking themselves the question, how would I want to be treated if I was in the patient's shoes? Listen to what one of our patients has to say about her experience at the Auburn Medical Group. My name is Susie Brown. I just want to sincerely thank that group of people for being there for me in some emergency situations. They are very efficient. Their staff, including their receptionist, even when you call her, she's got uh, sympathy and compassion for you. And when you're ill, that's what you need. The nurses, the nurse staff is wonderful. And Dr. Vaughn listens to everything you say and they just get on things. They do not let anything lag. If you need a doctor, call us at 886-8630 or look at our website at auburnmedicalgroup.com. Now, back to Medically Speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. We're back. This is Medically Speaking Radio. Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney speaking here with Dr. Joe Miranda, who is a critical care doctor and a pulmonologist at Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital. And uh, you may be wondering why we're not, uh, after every break and before every break, giving out the phone numbers. Well, that's because we're, we're pre-recorded this week. We're spending the holiday uh, weekend with our families and uh we could give our cell numbers out though i mean yeah. people could call us and we'd wonder why they're calling and we we could do that you you could call us and uh yeah we wouldn't be able to give you answers like dr miranda could but we'll we'll have dr miranda back on a live show in the sure, future be happy to come again well, we could but, have them call the number that that uh, max gives out every on his commercial oh max beeman yeah yeah you are you're all welcome to call that number that max beeman gives out just to hear <laughs> What happens when you call that phone number? Uh, did we have any other uh, pretend caller questions for Dr. Miranda? 
Well, no, but I, I wanted to get back into it. Now, happily, Dr. Miranda is a sleep specialist as well, and we were segueing turkey in the, in the whole, uh, I, I jokingly referred to the condition as a turkey coma, but he did mention something that I've heard, and I didn't know if it was simply an urban legend, that turkey, turkey meat has a substance called tryptophan in it, which is also found in warm milk, I hear. Yes, but, uh-huh. and and the effect of tryptophan on the human is what? Well, basically, it's it's a uh, biochemical uh, uh, precursor for the for the uh, production of a neurochemical in your brain that actually promotes sleep, and that's why it does uh, have that effect. And I I'm so sensitive to tryptophan. I can have a turkey sandwich, and thinking it was a chicken sandwich, and I'll I'll, I'll get sleepy in about you know maybe an hour or so after having had that, and I'll say what. Did, was that a chicken sandwich I had, or was that a turkey sandwich? I'm like, oh, turkey, oh, my God. <laughs> Next time we uh, take you out for turkey sandwiches, we'll give you a, a Red Bull with it. <laughs> I need to see this. Or do you ever prescribe turkey to your uh, patients who can't sleep? <laughs> no. Make, make it, I mean, get up and mix yourself a nice turkey milkshake, you know. Put that bad boy in the blender and whirl it around a little bit with some warm milk, guzzle it down. That'll put you out. No, that, that's 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 interesting. No, I've never I've never had that uh, type of recommendation. Speaking of uh, recent cases, you're talking about the dime. Uh, what what are some of the typical cases in the critical care unit that you've been seeing here lately? Well, we've had patients, categories. We've had patients who uh, uh, have really uh, uh, severe life threatening pneumonia to the point where they can't they can't breathe. And uh, there's a condition called uh, uh, acute, uh, adult, um, acute respiratory distress uh, syndrome, or ARDS, another term that's also been branded about that, that's uh, similar to that. It's called acute lung injury. So this is a condition where patients uh, develop uh, uh, dif- generalized and diffuse inflammation of their lung tissue to the point where they're unable to, to breathe because the lung tissue is so inflamed that you can't extract oxygen out of the uh, out of the general atmosphere at the same time the ability for the lungs to to uh, fill up with air becomes compromised the lungs become very stiff and so that usually requires a, a, a very uh, unusual and innovative way of breathing uh, using the mechanical ventilator to at least keep your oxygen content sufficiently up and and enough to sustain life and at the same time hoping that whatever the primary cause for your uh, uh, lung inflammation resol- uh, resolves and uh, this can easily be brought on by acute illness from other, some other source, or it could be because of a lung disorder like a, like a diffuse generalized pneumonia. I've had to do bronchoscopies in patients who have developed so much uh, severe pneumonia that they're unable to basically uh, clear any secretions from their airways. Uh, patients can, uh, when they're on a ventilator, they lose the ability to cough, and therefore y- your ability to clean out mucus that you would normally cough out which can block your airways is impaired. And sometimes I've had to go in and basically uh, do a little house cleaning and clean up uh, uh, mucus plugs that are blocking the airway that, uh, and that we can't ventilate with a ventilator because it's, it's occluded. And it changes how, uh, how air, airflow dynamics uh, uh, are able to maintain lung function in the lungs because of, this, of these occluded segments. So I've had to do that. I've also had to go in and look for any kind of occluding uh, uh, foreign matter or anything else that might be interfering with the ability to have someone breathe. Now, in pulmonary medicine, you, you guys have some pretty unique tools, a lot of technology that, that is fairly unique to your field. 
you spoke a little bit about the bronchoscope and what you can do with it. You can look through it. You can suction through it. You can light up. Um, I would guess you can even blow air through it. Uh, uh, not well, not necessarily. Uh, it's okay. uh, there, there's no therapeutic application for the bronchoscope in blowing air, but certainly in uh, looking basically at the airways and clearing it of obstruction if it's something that can be cleared with the bronchoscope, taking out a foreign body, biopsying any foreign uh, uh, any uh, cancers or tumors or any unusual growths that are causing uh, uh, respiratory symptoms. Uh, do you irrigate with it? Uh, you can do basically washings of a segment that you feel is, in, is uh, affected by a potential infection that no one has an idea what the cause of the infection is. And so you can irrigate it and then and then uh, aspirate or suction the, the, the irrigation fluid back into the bronchoscope and into a specimen trap to submit to a laboratory for analysis to look for any particular exotic bacteria or particular bacteria that uh, maybe we're not being able to treat with whatever selection of antibiotics uh, we've chosen. Now, in the old days, uh, in the office, you would try to get a sputum sample from the patient to analyze to see what kind of organism was causing, say, their pneumonia. Now, how is that done, and why is it done with the uh, bronchoscope instead of the sputum sample? Well, you know, technically, the sputum sample does have a lot of cross-contamination from uh, uh, oral, pharyngeal uh, 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 bacteria that's normally in there. You know, they say there are, that uh, our mouths are dirtier than a dog's mouth, but there is a lot of bacteria in the mouth, and depending on the quality of the sputum you're collecting, you may not get a desired specimen that's going to reveal what's going on in someone's lung if they have pneumonia. And again, uh, under the setting of needing a bronchoscope, some patients are so compromised that they can't do it, or they show up in the hospital and end up being on a ventilator, and we don't know what's what's causing their pneumonia. We certainly think of a you know a typical spectrum of commonplace organisms that we see in the community that are known to cause pneumonia, but sometimes the situation in the, in the hospital is such that whatever antibiotic we're giving, we're not able to really get a, res- a good response out of a patient, and they're not getting better. And so that's when you know a specimen like that might be helpful. And of course, we don't typically give antifungal uh, therapy uh, under most typical situations. And so one might need the bronchoscope to be able to look at particular fungal elements that may be part of the problem. You're talking about pneumonia, and a, a question occurred to me. You know, when I was a kid, we'd hear this from adults. If it was cold outside, we're running around, or maybe it's raining, they'll say, get in here and, and put a coat on, or don't go outside without a coat, or you'll catch your death of pneumonia. Now, implying that cold weather or that rain getting wet will cause me to get pneumonia. Now, I've never had pneumonia, and I've been both cold and wet. What, what, is, what is pneumonia caused by? Is it well, pneumonia, pneumonia is a general term that, uh, that reflects uh, the the involvement of segments of lung tissue with uh, with an abnormal accumulation of secretions, uh, either because you aspirated something that shouldn't be there, like you know, uh, you could have uh, you could have aspirated uh, seawater. You know, you almost drowned. That's like an aspiration pneumonia. Where on an X-ray, the lung that's a segment of lung that's involved by this process looks hazy and and whitish, like something is occluding it, whether it's secretions from something you aspirated or from infection. So typically, we think of pneumonia as being caused by an infectious organism, and uh, people typically should not be uh, someone who's healthy and and uh, immune competent, as we say. Typically, shouldn't be getting pneumonia. Usually, when you get pneumonia, it reflects a significant immune compromise. You know, you get a respiratory tract infection, starts off in your nose or your sinuses, 
and somehow it progresses to involve your your bronchial tubes and you get bronchitis and at some point it gets to be pneumonia somehow uh, getting to the point where you got pneumonia it was a failure in your immune system to defend you from all that stages of of uh, airway infection to the point where it got into your lung tissue and you end up you know needing to be uh, uh, treated more aggressively by some special antibiotics but a bacterial pneumonia that wasn't necessarily what the person caught yeah, may not necessarily be bacterial. It could be viral. Or or you had a cold, and then as your cold was causing you to be compromised, normal bacteria that live in your body ended up getting in a place they're not supposed to be. That's true, yeah. yeah. Well, which kind of brings us back to that age-old question. Is exposure to cold weather or exposure to rain the cause of the so-called common cold? Which no, no, not necessarily. I mean, we... Uh, I think it's it's guilt by association. At least the season is guilty because it is during the fall and winter seasons when uh, we do tend to have epidemics of uh, viral infections such as uh, influenza and uh, other bacterial pathogens start to uh, to uh, uh, spread a lot more readily. People get together in closed quarters and they they, they share uh, uh, bacterial infections a lot more readily. Okay, so it's large amounts of people enclosed in a building, a theater, a whatever, because it's it's too cold to go out, too wet to play ball, so we sat in the house and did nothing at all. That was a little quote from The Cat in the Hat, if you remember that one. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I recognize it. Uh, when we were talking about the um, bronchoscope and what we use it for, other tools uh, that I wanted to follow up with are the uh, the so-called BiPAP and CPAP. Oh, yeah, so, so uh, BiPAP and CPAP, are what we call non-invasive ventilatory assist devices. Uh, When you end up having respiratory failure, uh, usually uh, the intensivist or the emergency room doctor or the pulmonologist uh, will what we call intubate you. They basically insert an artificial airway through your throat into your trachea and attach this to a mechanical ventilator to assist you with your breathing because you've uh, become too exhausted that you don't have the strength to be able to breathe on your own. And, and at the same time, your requirement for oxygen is so much higher that the normal oxygen tension in the atmosphere is not sufficient for you to uh, uh, keep your organ systems going. And so with that, usually we have to provide extra oxygen and a mechanical ventilator. Now, a BiPAP and a CPAP. CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Air, air, air pressure, uh, Airway Pressure Therapy. And this is applied not through an artificial airway inserted into your trachea, through your throat, but through a mask. If we can uh, provide an appropriate seal around the nose and the mouth, uh, or just the nose with the mouth being sealed, then you're able to get uh, airway assistance with pressure, and usually with the assistance of oxygen as well, depending on the circumstance, to be able to help you with your breathing without having to be uh, mechanically uh, supported by a, a more invasive machine like a ventilator and, uh, and an artificial airway into your, into your uh, trachea. So uh, CPAP and BiPAP are sort of... Uh, uh, segues or step-down measures that will still, still provide you uh, uh, ventilatory assistance without being as invasive as a traditional uh, you know, mechanical ventilator in an endotracheal tube. Speaking of BiPAP and the uh, physician orders for life-sustaining treatment, it takes me back to my residency days uh, working in the emergency department, having a patient who had a, a severe exacerbation of her chronic obstructive lung disease or, or emphysema. So severe that uh, by how low her saturations were, how much effort she was taking for her to breathe, and um, 
the declining degree of effort she could put out because she just didn't have the energy anymore. I was convinced that without what we used to do, intubation, putting the tube in and breathing form with the machine, that she would die. And I was so convinced of it that uh, the family was there, and I, I told them that this this is what we're facing. And she said, I would rather die right now than to be put on the ventilator and maybe or maybe not get off of the ventilator. We had a new technology that we, not so new that we weren't using it, but relatively new, um, but I was familiar with it, and that was the BiPAP. And so I got her to agree to wear the BiPAP mask, which gives the two levels of pressure. One level of pressure when they're breathing out so that it keeps the lungs open, and then the, like you were saying, and then another level of pressure to help push air in, like being intubated without the tube. Yes, it's a lot more comfortable. And, and she has survived because of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice uh, uh, life-saving uh, intervention without having to be too invasive and aggressive. And it buys time. It allows the patient to have some assistance when they breathe and provides them additional oxygen if that's necessary. Um, but it is, as we call it, non-invasive ventilatory assist. And uh, in, in sleep apnea, uh, patients who I take care of with, with sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, they are on CPAP at night because their airway is closing and the positive pressure that the device provides keeps the airway from collapsing and then allows them to sleep unimpeded from uh, breathing-related uh, uh, compromise. Another example of new technology just within a couple of decades becoming the, the standard in, in saving people's lives. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on this show. This actually does bring us to the end of uh, this Medically Speaking Radio. I, I would like to throw out with the discussion that we had on the different different technologies for assisting breathing, people may want to uh, refer to this podcast in the future when they have friends or family who are facing making decisions about life-sustaining treatment or who are in a situation where a doctor is proposing different types of uh, artificial ventilatory support. Uh, Dr. Miranda, thanks again for coming on the show. We always appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate it. enjoy being on the show with you guys. We really do need to get you back in the studio next time so that we can get callers, callers other than just Larry's list of questions. And uh, as always, this is Dr. Mark Vaughn, Larry Finney, and this time Dr. Joe Miranda telling all of our listeners to stay in good health.